You are listening to the Trinity Presbyterian Church Podcast from Petaluma, California. Here is this week's sermon. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25. Part of this we read last week, but I'm going to, as I mentioned last week, I'm going to reread it again and start specifically at verse 19, which is that new section in Genesis, and we'll read uh, through 26, uh, verse 5. Let's stand for our scripture reading today. Hear the word of the Lord. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of the pool, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, which they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand, holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking the stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. What use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now there was a famine in the land beside the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws. Amen. Maybe you've heard of the slogan, real men pray. Maybe you have, maybe you have. I've heard it, I got a little ornament that says it. You know, you think about sort of men, masculine stereotypes. One of those masculine stereotypes you tend to think or hear come to mind, right, is strength. Right, that's one of the common masculine stereotypes, sort of physical strength especially. 
But that slogan that I mentioned to you of real men pray, it sort of pushes on those sort of masculine stereotypes to give us some other thought. That ideal manhood should recognize one's weakness and drive you to prayer. Realize that, right? To pray inherently acknowledges there are things you don't have the strength to deal with. And you can imagine a sort of uh, perverted masculinity thinks, I'm strong, I don't need any help. The real men pray. That's what I claim to you today here from the scriptures. Prayer admits our weakness. That we need God. It's not just men who need to pray. Men and women, God's people, need to pray. As we begin our new section here in Genesis, remember these are the generations, right? That represents a new section in Genesis. So now we have this new section about Isaac. We're going to find this truth that I'm referring to today illustrated in a few ways. This idea that every man and woman need to be reminded of our dependence, our dependence on the Almighty God. Indeed, for the Christian, as we read earlier, when we are weak, we are strong. We're being taught then to rely on the power of God, especially particularly in Jesus. We'll be considering this today in three points. First, by considering Isaac here. Second, by considering Rebecca. And then lastly, by considering Jacob and Esau together, particularly their struggles that they have with each other. Let's begin with Isaac. And we're going to start thinking about Isaac by going to the very end of our passage first. Go to chapter uh, 26. Look at the first few verses there of chapter 26. There we find God reaffirms his covenant that he had made to Abraham, but now he reaffirms it to Isaac. Basically to tell Isaac that the promises God had given his father are the same promises he's now assuring Isaac of having. God had told that course to Abraham, that Abraham's Promises that, that God gave Abraham would be fulfilled through Isaac specifically. Now God himself tells that personally to Isaac. Right now we should see that Isaac is really standing in the place now of his father Abraham. Continuing in where that story left off. Now God interacting with Isaac. And as we look at this uh, work here of, of God and talking to Isaac here in chapter 26. We could say this is God making a covenant with Isaac. But you notice we don't tend to refer to it that way. We don't tend to talk about the, you know, we talk about the Abrahamic covenant. We don't tend to talk about the Isaacian covenant, right? And, and, and though it wouldn't be wrong maybe to say that, but, uh, but it's because as we look at what's being promised here to Isaac, it's not anything different than what had been promised to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. Verse 3, God references the oath that he swore to Abraham. And the promises then that we see God promising to Isaac are what God had promised Abraham. How do we summarize them? Remember the people and the place. Those are being reiterated here. In verse 4, there's a description of a promise of a great people 
to come from Isaac. As, as, as numerous as the stars. Sound familiar, right? That's what God told Abraham. We also see there the promise of the land of Canaan. That specific land. It's not just he's promised a place, the same place God promised Abraham, that land of Canaan. That's what Isaac has promised here. As for Isaac's part, his response, he's called here to live in faith in light of these promises. And part of that expression of faith, for example, means he's to stay in the promised land, not go to Egypt. Right? That's how the chapter 26 opens up. Because God's promised him the land of Canaan, don't go down to Egypt. Stay there. And of course, it also means he's to call, he's called to pursue a life of godliness, even as Abraham is described there in verse 5. Recognize there's a test of faith there. Right? Chapter 26, God tells him, don't go to Egypt. But realize when he's being told that. It's in the context of a famine. Remember, that's exactly the mistake that his father had made. Abraham, in Genesis 12, God had called Abraham out of Haran to the promised land. Abraham came there, was there for a time, but a famine came. And what did Abraham do? He went down to Egypt. And if you remember, that was not a good, good situation down in Egypt, and I spent a good bit of time in that passage talking about why that was not the right trajectory uh, for Abraham to be going. And by the time now we get to here, we see that interpretation I gave you then is right, because here, what does God tell Isaac? Don't go to Egypt, even though there's a famine. So you see how this brings a test of faith for Isaac. God promises these wonderful promises, but tells him there's going to be trial. There's going to be testing before he enjoys the fulfillment of these promises. That includes him having to endure a famine in the very land God had promised him. A land we know else at other times is referred to as a land of milk and honey. And as we're sort of beginning to start to think about this theme of seeing man's weaknesses as an opportunity for God's strength to be manifested, it's right here even in this beginning thought of a famine, right? He has to endure this, this trial. And, and, and maybe he has to go with just a little for a time in a famine. But this will be an opportunity uh, as Isaac trusts in the Lord in the midst of the famine. It'll be an opportunity to depend upon God to provide even during this time of a famine. See, the opposite would be, let's trust in my own strength to try to get my way out of this famine. And that would be reflected by, I know what to do, let's go down to Egypt. See, that would have been a sort of try to solve it by man's strength. God tells Isaac, no, solve it by trusting me. Stay in the land. Well, let's return now as we're still thinking about Isaac. Go back to the beginning of today's passage. We see another example that for Isaac will require his faith amidst human weakness. Verses 19 through 21. We're reminded there how he marries Rebecca. But what does he discover? Find, learn that Rebecca is barren. She's unable to have children. Think about the context for this. 
last chapter was a wonderful testimony of how God gave special angelic guidance to direct Abraham's servant to the very perfect wife for Isaac. Think about the whole chapter, how long it was, how it directed us to this wonderful way God provided life. I pointed out then how Isaac had more divine guidance in finding a wife that people ordinarily receive, right? We don't normally as Christians get that level of supernatural divine guidance in finding our spouse. But Isaac did. But the wife God picks for Isaac is barren. Think about that. God promises to Isaac a numerous seed of offspring Isaac will need a wife for that task. And yet the special, divinely selected wife for Isaac to fulfill this, that wife God picks is there. Just think about it. At first thought, first thought, that might seem very confusing. Why would God give Isaac a wife like that? Yet on further consideration, how very fitting this was. God reprises the same lesson he had for Isaac's father, Abraham. Abraham had to learn it would not be by man's strength that would bring about the fulfillment of God's promises. No, God would choose to fulfill his promises through Abraham and Sarah's weakness. And they were old and as good as dead in many ways, right? Bible speaks of, you know, that womb is good as dead. That's when Isaac was finally born. It was so inconceivable, remember? They laughed in joy. So that when Isaac was finally born, everyone would know it happened not by the power of man, but by the power of God. So then Isaac would sort of have a bit of a reprise of that same lesson here now in the, in the next generation, a sort of smaller version of the same trial, so that the lesson would not be lost on, on him. That lesson that God's teaching here indeed bore good fruit in Isaac. Look at verse 21. Isaac prays. Isaac prays for his wife because of her barrenness. And God answers his prayer. Praise the Lord. Isaac could not heal his wife's barrenness. But he could pray to the one who could. And that's what he did. And God the Almighty did what was humanly impossible. And not only does he grant that one child is conceived, but even twins are conceived. Isaac learns to depend upon God through prayer via this trial. Not just to depend upon God, but even with this means of prayer as an expression of depending upon God in the trial. As a point of application at this, at this stage here, we see that God's plan for your life doesn't mean that you will have a problem-free life. 
Sometimes we can have faulty thinking like that and such things. I think of even in the in the uh, uh, quest for a spouse, right? You think if I find the one that God would have me to marry, then everything will go so well. But that's not how life works. It's not how God's plan works ordinarily. It wasn't the case for Isaac, and surely won't be the case for us that that we'll have a, a problem-free life. We like to remind ourselves of that beautiful promise of Romans 8.28. The all things of Romans 8.28 includes good times and also times of trial. Also times of trial. Isaac, I've learned that here. Let's turn down our second point. And think about the same topic now from with regard to Rebecca. And what we see about Rebecca here. Doesn't her story teach us the same thing? I mean, of course, beginning with the fact that she was barren. I can only imagine, as Rebecca in that barrenness, I can only imagine the heartache. I can only imagine the stress. Especially as you're told when you're on the way to meet your husband, that, oh yeah, there's this great promise how there's going to be a huge seed come from you guys. And then you can't have a child. But then she finally gets pregnant. Finally. I'm sure she's overjoyed. But then look at verse 22. The children struggle together within her. And she says, if it's thus, why is this happening to me? She asked, why? Why is this happening? She doesn't know that she has twins inside her. They didn't have ultrasound. All she knows, after so long, she's finally pregnant. And now something doesn't seem right at all. Her womb is in some sort of chaos. Again, you could think of the previous point, right? I, if I can only get married, everything will be great. And then there's trouble. If I can only get pregnant now with Rebecca, then everything will be great. No, there's trial. After finally getting pregnant, now she thinks something's not right. This is another example here of human weakness. She's in physical turmoil with these two babies inside her struggling against each other. And she's there now. We also see this emotion or emotional turmoil too, not knowing what's going on, probably fearing the worst. Right, nowadays, you go on WebMD. What could be possibly wrong? Right? But what does she do? She too goes to the Lord in prayer. Verse 22, she inquires of the Lord. We're not told exactly what that looked like, but she inquires of the Lord, and we see that God blesses her with this amazing oracle prophecy there, starting in verse 23. In short, God reveals to her the explanation for why she's having this physical turmoil. There are two peoples inside her. They are to be the patriarchs of two different nations. In the womb, they're already struggling uh, for power against each other. And God basically tells her that they're going to have the same sort of struggles in life as well. In other words, outside the womb, 
this is still going to be happening. Well, from there, the text transitions in verse 24 to tell us about the birth of these two boys, Jacob and Esau. But recognize how God answers Rebekah's prayer. The prayer that came out of her weakness. Look at how God answers that prayer. She looks to the Almighty God because of this concern she has. She's, she feels powerless to solve it. And amazingly, God responds with this special revelation in a way that we, again, humans, we don't normally get that kind of level of detailed answer from the Lord, right? This is not ordinary part of the Christian experience. She gets this special divine message that explains what's going on. But think about the answer to the prayer. The answer to the prayer is not, okay, no more turmoil in your womb. It'll be easy pregnancy from here. It's not what she's told. And if anything, it's really that God gives an explanation about it and says it's going to continue to be a problem all their lives. And yet we don't see any further questioning by Rebecca. It's enough for her to know that the Almighty God, who sees the end from the beginning, says this is according to plan. I think we can take comfort in that. Again, take another point of application there. In our prayer life, our prayers don't always result in our problems being immediately solved in this life. These two boys were fighting even before they were born, and they kept doing it afterwards. Their struggles in life are going to bring further challenges to Rebecca and Isaac. And yet, while Rebecca's prayer doesn't solve all her problems in that way, it was enough for her. And we can see that this word from the Lord, it would, it would inform her actions going forward. And I think, as we'll see, some of her actions going forward in light of this word are already some misplaced zeal. We'll look at that in a little bit, not today. Uh, but, but this is how prayer can be answered sometimes. We can bring our weakness before God, lay our troubles before Him, and maybe He brings to mind a Bible verse like 2 Corinthians 12, My grace is sufficient for you. In other words, you're not going to get that thorn removed. That's what Rebecca did here. She brings her prayers. Doesn't have the issue itself solved, but she has some insight into what's going on. And in our weakness before God, as we come to Him in prayer, even if He doesn't solve the specific problem that you bring before Him in prayer, at least in this life, it's an opportunity for us to be learning to depend upon God. For him to be ministering to our hearts through that. I actually think of uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. You know, you read that book and some people think, this is such a bleak book. It talks about how things don't go right all the time, it seems like. And, and yet, how many people have told, told me and told others that when I was going through some really hard time, I read this book that was about people going through really hard times, even though it didn't make any sense, and I was really comforted by it. Because it reminded them that God was not unaware that this wasn't somehow not part of God's plan. God has a plan even through the challenges. And as we wrestle with it in prayer, God's working in our heart through that. Again, so we can learn to trust and depend upon God. Well, in our final point, let's turn now to consider this same topic with regard to Jacob and Esau. And I think we're going to be able to think about this topic from Jacob and Esau, but from a little bit different way. And I think you'll see what I mean as we get into it. 
Uh, these two brothers, they, they, they're very contrasting pictures. And so we're going to get a chance to think about this theme of, of, of weakness, but from a little bit different angle. Think about the prophecy, for starters. There's prophecy about them. They're going to be divided. They'll become two nations. One will be ultimately stronger than the other. We see that there. And of course, isn't that our theme today? Strength over weakness. But what kind of strength are we talking about? What kind of weakness, right? Now think about that in terms of these two boys. What would the world's perspective have been? Go back to the ancient world. What would the ancient world's perspective have been about these two boys? Who would have been the strongest that they would have assumed to be the strongest? Of course, would have started from who's the older son? They would have, of course, the older son typically naturally received the birthright. That meant they got double the inheritance as the other sons. Double, therefore, the resources, double uh, the power that comes along with that resources. Uh, that's uh, certainly part of the strength that Esau would have been born into. Of course, that human strength is reversed here because it says the older will serve the younger. That would have been surprising. Of course, this is from the standpoint of divine election. In terms of how God will fulfill his promise that he gave to Abraham through Isaac and now through Jacob, not through Esau. And yet again, doesn't the text paint us a picture different than what we might have assumed, what the world might have assumed? Think about the description of these two sons as they're described. Who might you think is painted here as a picture of, of strength? One that you might just sort of naturally be inclined to think about and think that's the one God's going to do great things through. You have Esau, this hairy, think manly, hairy, skilled hunter, man of the field, a very manly, sandy man. He's the father's clear favorite. But Jacob's description is certainly quite a bit different. Now there's a translation challenge in verse 27 when Jacob's described is he, is he described as a quiet man or a mild man or a peaceful man or an upright man or just a man that's content to be at home. Either way there's some sort of description about him being at home. And, and it's, just to clarify of all the sort of translation nuance options, they're all painting Jacob in a positive way. There's nothing painted here as sort of a negative idea. But what does come out is Jacob is a homebody. And he's clearly the favorite of his mother. So Jacob and Esau are painted very differently. And in terms of stereotypes from the world's thinking, stereotypes of who's the stronger of the two, I think it's pretty clear that Esau is being painted from a world's perspective as the stronger of the two. But again, God chooses the one who would have been perceived by human standards as the weaker and is going to, through Jacob, establish his line of promise. So in terms of birth order, in terms of outward appearances, in terms of even parental preferences, Esau looks like the stronger of the choice. But God chooses Jacob who seems weaker to do his plan of Jacob over Esau. 
Um, just as a little side note here, let me remind you from last week's lesson. Even though God chooses Jacob over Esau, this does not mean that there would be no hope for the nation that would come from Esau's lineage. Yes, through Jacob's lineage, God would establish his visible church and ultimately bring forth Jesus the Christ, the Savior. Chapter 26, verse 4 even reminds us that such choosing of Jacob over Esau was not meant to absolutely exclude the nations from blessing, right? Look at 26, verse 4. It just means that through Jacob's seed, blessing would come forth through that seed, blessing that would be held out to all the nations. And we have to keep that in mind, that this chosen line always had a grander perspective of not only to bring blessing to that chosen line, but to be able to extend blessing to the nations. So what Esau's seed ought to have done, if they wanted to know those blessings, is to seek to bless Jacob and Jacob's line instead of fighting against Jacob and Jacob's line. Unfortunately, that is what, generally speaking, happened going forward. Uh, the book of Obadiah is an example of that. So then think further of the contrast we see between the two boys here and their interactions, talking now about the red stew and the birthright. It is interesting that the hunter, hunter Esau comes back after hunting, and he's starving. Didn't he catch anything? Did his strength in hunting not gain him anything that day? So it's certainly an interesting question to think about. Sometimes human strength fails you. But you can't help, of course, but read Esau's words here and think he sounds a little bit melodramatic. Was he really going to die if he didn't get any food right then and there? But then again, look at verse 29. He was exhausted. By the way, exhausted is a term of weakness. In other words, his strength was gone after such a long day, and it's in his weakness that he chooses not to value something that was actually of a great strength to him. He sells his birthright for bowl soup. Again, the birthright was the right of the firstborn to a double share of the inheritance. The chapter ends explaining why he would do such a thing. He despised his birthright. He didn't properly value it. That's what it means when he despises it. It means he didn't value it for the great worth that it was. Hebrews 11, or excuse me, Hebrews 12, 16, even false Esau for doing this. And it says that Esau was unholy by despising his birthright. Esau's strength here in this passage is painted, is painted as, as failing him. And given the choice of addressing his, his momentary physical fatigue or choosing something far better for the future, he chooses the immediate gratification. Surely this is the big part of his despising the birthright. He, he didn't have patience for something greater to come. He chose immediate gratification. So much for his strength. It failed him when he needed it. He valued the wrong thing. 
but not Jacob. In a sense, Jacob had the right ambition here. He valued something of great value. He saw the great value of this birthright that was bestowed by Isaac. And think about it, this is not just any ordinary birthright. This is the birthright that Isaac received from Abraham. All the promise that came along with that, the whole Abraham covenant, you can tie that all into it. Jacob sees that. You know, you think about it, what does God make more clear as we keep reading in the scriptures, think of even like the Beatitudes, for example, that God's people will inherit the whole world. To fix your heart on the birthright of the chosen people is to treasure a future of such glorious things God has promised to his people. That is something to be excited about. Jacob goes about that. He goes about pursuing this birthright in a sinful way. If you've ever wondered this, in case it wasn't clear to you, let me make sure you understand. What Jacob wants is a good thing. How Jacob goes about getting it is bad, is wrong, is evil. The birthright of that double inheritance by birth is the right of Esau's. It belonged to Esau. If you crave something, want something, will do anything to get something that belongs to someone else, we have a word for that. It's called coveting, as in thou shalt not covet. Not to mention if you're supposed to love your neighbor, you should especially love your brother. If your brother is hungry. If, if your enemy is hungry, you give him something to eat, Jesus. If your brother is hungry, you give him something to eat. Now we know from prophecy that Jacob was the one God was going to choose over Esau. And we know from prophecy also that that means all of that right and, 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 and wealth is going to come through Jacob's life. Also. But if Jacob is going to receive it by God, then it would have to be, it ought to be, through the overriding grace of God, through providence, that it somehow, despite it ordinarily being through Esau, that it somehow in God's overriding providence comes to Jacob. Let me give you an example. King David, God had rejected Saul and said, I, will, I am going to give the kingdom to you, David. David has a prophecy, not that much different than Jacob here. David has a prophecy. He's going to be the king to replace King Saul. And so David has an opportunity, a multiplication, to kill King Saul so he can become king right then. And David would not do it because he said, and he was right, it would be unrighteous. God would work it out in his own way. Maybe Saul would die in battle. Maybe some other way. Same thing's the case here. Maybe Esau would have died before he came into the inheritance and Jacob could have then taken it all then, right? God might have done it some other way. But Jacob instead said he wanted to use, Jacob wanted to use human strength, human wisdom to secure the birthright from his brother. 
Let me be clear, I'm not doubting the legitimacy of their, of their transaction whereby Esau swears over the inheritance to Jacob, but I'm faulting Jacob for a failure to love his brother. I would say this is not a by faith moment of Jacob. Jacob desired something that was worthy to be desired, but how he sought to pursue it is that he essentially tried to purchase the gift of God. Our passage has highlighted today how man's weakness becomes an opportunity for God's saving power to gift his people blessing. So we realize we're saved by grace, by God's strength, not our own strength. But Jacob's example is a pursuit of the opposite. Jacob's example here is his attempt to bring about God's promises through his own efforts. It's of the same sort of failed approach as when Abraham had a child with Hagar. It's of the same problem type of thing. And frankly, for Jacob, it's just the beginning of war to come, where Jacob foolishly tries to secure the gift of God through his own strength and efforts. And you know, it's it's he's true to his name, just like he was grabbing the heel of his brother at birth to sort of take it. But by God's decree, God makes our weakness strong by his power. God will ultimately give his promises to Jacob, but not by Jacob's grasping. I think as we, as we work through the Jacob story, we're going to realize all of Jacob's grasping leaves him on rock bottom. And it will be by the grace of God that out of his weakness that he is made strong. We'll see that as we keep going through Genesis. Well, as we conclude our message for today, I'd like to offer an application then for our church. We had our congregational meeting last week. We discussed, of course, that we've experienced a bit of decline in membership over the last few years. Of course, we sent even a letter out sort of related to all of this this week. Of course, losing members over a period of time, that creates a certain sense of weakness in our ministry. Not only from a financial resources standpoint, but even just from a laboring together and the sort of fellowship that we bring together and the camaraderie and the sharpening, right? There's a certain sense of weakness that has. Yet I remember what Pastor Miller wrote about this sort of thing back in 1976. He reflected on another period of extended decline and challenge that our church here faced just before God brought a great period of growth. I'm quoting him here, Pastor Miller wrote, We needed the hardship to teach us to cry out to God. We needed the hardship to teach us to cry out to God. Pastor Miller wrote, went on to write, he said that God brought through that trial a greater boldness in the church's prayer ministry. And Pastor Miller went on to write how he rejoiced as God so wonderfully answered that prayer. And Pastor Miller's words are a wonderful application of the principles that we find in today's passage. And I believe that they are very applicable and timely for us today in this current circumstances before us. Let us have a renewed fervor to cry out to our Lord in prayer. Did he be growing us? 
that his strength would all the more be manifest in the midst of our own weaknesses of various sorts, individually and as a church. That our weakness would remind us of our dependence upon him. That he would get the glory in all things, including in our church's ministry. Let's pray. Lord God, we confess that when we are weak, we are strong. Because your strength is highlighted amidst our weakness. Lord, you have saved us from our sin and misery. You've lifted us up into a place of glory, all by your grace. And so here we are, Lord. You've placed us here in this rocky ground in the Bay Area. We're a small and humble ministry. But yet, Lord, you've seen fit to use us in great ways over more than five decades. And we ask that you would continue to so use us. We're so thankful to be a part of this and to be here where we have us. Bless this ministry. We do pray that you'd be growing us and even sending us new members. And so we pray together in the name of the Lord Jesus who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.